Hello, and thanks for joining us for this Mersey Waves podcast. I'm Louise, and I'm a member of Liverpool City Council's communications team. At 2pm on the 28th of August, Radio Merseyside's Roger Phillips turned off his mic on the phone-in for the final time, marking the end of one of radio's most legendary careers. Over 42 years, he's been accused of being too right-wing, He's been accused of being a communist and even more people have accused him of spending too much time sitting on the fence. Whatever your opinion, Roger has always been at the centre of local issues and those two hours each weekday won't feel the same for quite some time. Although he'll be back on Radio Merseyside later this year, the legend in all our lunchtimes won't be taking listeners' calls again. We hope you enjoy listening to Roger one more time. We certainly enjoyed speaking to him. The first thing that I need to ask you, Roger, is that have you recovered from your last show? That was quite the emotional roller coaster. those final two hours. Yeah, it was quite. It took me a bit by surprise. I didn't know what was going to happen. I've got a great producer, Angela, I sort of produced it. Uh, but she kept me in the dark. Uh, so it, because of that, I, I was too busy doing the programme until the end of it. And to be honest, I was really sad afterwards. But during it, it was kind of, yeah, just get on with it, you know what I mean? But it's quite emotional afterwards. So you announced that you were leaving on the 11th of June. Your final show was the 28th of August. Yeah. Um, as you know, in the comms team, we're avid listeners to your, uh, to your show. Um, oh, and it, it felt over those weeks that you, was, you seemed to get a call at almost every single show who was phoning up just to say thank you for what you'd done and that they were going to miss you. Were you surprised by that depth of so. feeling from the listeners? Very much so. Um, I'd said I'd wanted to leave back in December and um, basically they said, look, would you stay on a bit because uh, we've got various things and then in January COVID happened or soon after and the whole idea was so we, I agreed I'd stay till the till August, which is what I what we've done. But I would I said to them, I look, I don't want a fuss. I just want you know to go. And they said, no, no, no there'll be a big fuss. I said, no, they won't. People aren't bothered. You know, it it's very temporary radio. You know, once you've gone, you've gone. People have forgotten all about you in a, in a week. Anyhow, uh, they then said, well, all right, but we want you to announce it beforehand. So it's time to settle in, which I didn't want to do. But I did. And yes, I, I couldn't believe every single call virtually was saying nice things about me, which is very embarrassing. And I, you know, it's not about me. I keep saying to people, it's about Merseyside, the people who ring in. It's they who made the program, not doing me. So I, I was a bit embarrassed by it. And then on my final program, it was just inundated. In fact, on the Thursday as well, inundated with these things. It was, and now, I have got, uh, well, I've answered so far 210. I've got probably another, I would guess, 200 odd emails, cards, letters, texts. So I'm trying to answer them all, and it's driving me potty because they're lovely people, and I'm, I'm, some of them I know well. I mean, some of So I'm working really hard, I'm working harder than I ever have <laughs> answering all these emails. It's awful. You've got all the emails, but also, can we just, we have to mention the poetry 
there was oh. seemed to be a, 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 the poems. I mean, what what was that about? I mean, are we going to look forward to a Roger Phillips phoning anthology in a few months? No, I no. What we are looking forward to, I don't know quite the detail of it, is a, a series around December, five episodes, pre-recorded, uh, not phoning. I mean, the the real thing is, I, there's two or three things. It's always wise, it seems to me, to go out when you're doing all right, rather than being chucked out. And so that's one reason. Another one is, I have a grandson who's coming up to three in October, so that's why I need to be in Brighton for much more of my life, where we are, you know, and I just need to be seeing more. And my daughters who live down south as well. Not that I'm gonna leave Liverpool, because I'm not, but I'm gonna be down there a lot more. When you've got a daily show, <coughs> excuse me, you can't, escape Liverpool when you want to. Uh, to go to Brighton for a weekend means you drive down on a Friday and you, you've knackered when you get down there. You've got Saturday and then really Sunday you're driving back again knackered. That has stopped, thank goodness. Um, but I, I want to stay part of the Ready Missile family and will do and part of Liverpool's family. I'll be doing, all, I do quite a lot of things outside the BBC and I, I've already booked up for loads of stuff next year. Uh, I mean, I, I, strangely enough, I got a booking yesterday, not a booking. Someone said, would I do something yesterday? And I couldn't because I already agreed to do something else on one of the days. So it's, I'm not going to be at a loose end and everything. And there's tons of things around the house that have been putting off and putting off and putting off. Like our loft, you should see our loft. It's a different <laughs> There are things in there. Didn't I read some of it that you're going to be taking up a clarinet? Yes, indeed I am. Uh, I've got myself, I, I worked in the past a lot, less so recently with the film, uh, the Philharmonic. Uh, and that's another thing I want to do, to go and see more of the film. And uh, Sandra Parr, who is the, she must have been the longest person there, certainly I've known ever since. She's a sort of, sort of administrator. She's not really, she's an artistic administrator. I don't know how you describe her. I don't know what I've boshed out of this, but I've known her donkeys. She sent me an email and said, you know, a really nice email. And then somebody said, I hear you say you want to take up the clarinet. Now, the thing is, my daughter learned the clarinet, but gave it up. And she left the clarinet here. So in the last what, year, I picked it up occasionally and tried to play a little bit. And I've got a book with simple how to teach yourself the clarinet stuff. Turns out, and I didn't know this, I didn't know Sandra's husband. He's um, a clarinet teacher. So she emailed and said, look, you can use, she lives not far from us. You need a clarinet teacher. My husband's a clarinet teacher. So when I get back from Brighton, that's number one on the list. Get in touch Brilliant. with him. I love it. And then I want to join an orchestra. I used to play in an orchestra. I don't want to join an orchestra. So that's going to keep me busy a bit, I hope. To go back to the, to the phone-in, for, for so many people, the phone-in wasn't just something that they had on in the background. It was something that they really listened to. Um, what role do you think that the show played um, in the region for all those years? That's quite an interesting question. I, I think, and I only realised this, I, I think I realised it when Hillsborough happened, and again, eventually I realised it anyhow. It, it's become what it became, where it was, a kind of a central sounding board, marketplace. It's where people, <coughs> I, 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 want, I know there are a lot of people very lonely and that the phone-in works because it allows them to take part in what's going on. They may not even ring in. I mean, I've had loads of emails from people 
I've never rung in but and told me amazing stories about how it's affected them. And I did half realize, I'm realizing even more now with these emails, but um, it's, it's somewhere that people, even though they don't ring in, they feel they're part of the Liverpool Merseyside discussion. And um, it's got a lovely lot of variety in it. As, as I say, I've got a great producer, Andrea Leslaw, and she, because a lot of calls come in and never get on air or they're in too many, and she selects brilliantly the ones that could come in. So that one minute I could be uh, talking to, talking to somebody about Bulgaria and the problems there, and the next minute talking about Mrs. Jones and her bins not being emptied, and then getting in touch with you to annoy you and get on, get on with solving it. Um, but it's a place where people felt at home. They, they, I know a bank manager, I'm sure this is more than one person who used to arrange his lunch so that he'd go out into the car, have his lunch in the car, sandwiches, and listen to the programme. I, I don't know why it's so attractive, except the people, I think it's better than any other phone in the country, and I listen to quite a few, and it's because Merseyside people have got opinions, they want to say things, they want somewhere where they can get things off their chest, even if they can't solve the problem, and they're not backward in coming forward, which is, that's what makes this phone in work. Let's go back to the beginning. When you started on Radio Merseyside, the format of your show was slightly different, wasn't it? It wasn't the two-hour phoning. Can you, can you tell us what, was, what that first show was like? Well, my first show was the morning show. I went to, did the breakfast show for, <coughs> excuse me, about two and a half years, about 1978 to 81. And then I went to London because I was involved in acting and I was at a Western show. But while, all the while I'd been there, Ian Judson, who was a brilliant, brilliant manager, died at 39 far too early. Lovely, lovely man. He was the guy basically who employed me. And um, we had a phone in at that time called Light and Local, I think he was called, but the guy called Lovely Guy, lovely guy Steve Kay, used to run it. But it was, it was too light for my view. It was like gardening, flower range and that kind of stuff. And I drove a taxi at that time, and I knew that people in Liverpool, yeah, they might be interested in that, but they have other interests. I used to bellyache to him about it and say, let me do the phone-in, let me do a tough phone-in. And he said, uh, nobody, he's Geordie, nobody like Anyhow, uh, at the same time, unbeknownst to me, he was working on something, typical BBC in those days. BBC said, no, you can only do local radio at 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's all. After that, Radio 2. And he thought, well, if we can go on till midnight, then actually we might hold on to the more listeners and so forth. So they said no. He went, apologies for all this. I think I know how to get rid of this. I hope I know how to get rid of that noise. Hang on a minute. That's more emails coming in, isn't it? I can't get rid of it because if I get rid of it, I get yes, rid of it. And I love to hear from you. So he thought, hang on to them. He said no. So he went ahead and did it anyhow. And interestingly enough, a year later, every local radio station went till midnight. Anyhow, the point is this, Steve Kay, he moved to do an evening show, which suited, he seemed a very kind of, I don't know if he's still working, but a lovely, kind of laid back, relaxed presenter, very good for evenings. And when I came back from London, he said to me, he rang me up and said, all right, you can try this lunchtime phone thing of yours. And at that time, it became, around then, it was called Town and Round. And it had music in it, it had features in it, and it had a bit of a phone in. 
And we realized the phone-in was working really well. And I think, if I remember rightly, the phone-in was intermittent. And eventually we decided, no, we'll make it intermittent. We'll have a solid phone-in. I think it was between 12 and 1 with other things earlier on because it started at 11.30, the program. And I may have got this slightly wrong because it was a long time ago. But what I do remember is, uh, when we looked at the figures, there was a real drop-off after one o'clock. And it was clear people were going to television news or some news elsewhere. So because 12 to 1 was successful, Ian said, look, let's run it on for another half hour. And in the end, it ran on till 2 o'clock. And it became 11.30 till 2. And then there were various changes. It become 12 till 2. And that's how it's been. And no music, no nothing. Now, <clears throat> the BBC is not keen on that. And I've, um, so I think any phone-ins in the future on Radio side, in the short term, anyhow, medium term, will have music in them. And they may well be right. I don't know if they're right or wrong. We'll find out. Uh, all I know is it did work, all speech. But it did frighten the BBC a bit, I think, the all speech thing in local radio. They believe, and probably rightly so, that music's necessary. Do you remember the first time that you actually you know, sat in the studio and, and sort of said this is our first caller. Can you remember what that was like? How did you feel about it? Like, oh, who, who's coming on now? Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't know it would work at all. I had no idea it would work. Um, I thought it would, but that doesn't mean it would. And would I be able to cope with all the different calls that come and all that kind of thing? And I just didn't know. But it does. And somehow, I'm a blagger. I can talk about anything, whether I know it or not. You know, I can pretend I know it and all that. So um, it, I just started to enjoy it, and I really do enjoy it. Well, I loved the, I describe it as being, from a presenter's point of view, I don't know, when one of my kids were little, we went to Alton Twilight School, and there was there um, one of these up and down things, and the but it was enclosed, it was all in black. So you didn't know when you sat on this thing, whether it was going to go down, up, left, right, and that is how the phone is. You still know what's coming next. And I love that because you've got to be really on your toes, really sharp, and you've got to have information at your fingertips. I mean, you've detailed how the show changed over the years, sort of like the length of how, how long it went on for and you, the guys looking at the listenership and so on. But how the callers changed over the years. And have you noticed the type of calls have changed, how their concerns have changed? No, I don't think I have really. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, we always, we've always got something political going on in this city, whether it's a docker strike or whether it's uh, closures. I mean, the worst period in time, apart from Hillsborough, was, was the every Friday there'd be, you know, redundancies, redundancies, redundancies. It was awful. And people needed to speak about that. So they've always spoken about this real mix of... Um, of political issues which can be political locally, having a go at the, the, uh, the mayor of Liverpool, whatever he does is wrong, or sometimes right. Um, but also to talk, they found, and I think it's always been like this from my memory, uh, always a place where they have a problem, we can solve it. We'll solve their problem. Now we can't solve them always, but we can try. And it is true to say that if a firm is treating someone badly, and they continue to, and we ring up and say, it's the BBC, they suddenly find a way of solving the problem. Not 90% of the time. 
And that is really lovely to be able to help people who are having, it's a shame, it shouldn't have to happen, but it's lovely to do that. So you get a real mix of people talking about hard politics, soft politics, having to go with people, um, worrying about their own particular circumstances, their loneliness, sometimes they just want to talk. Um, and it's, I find it quite brilliant. Uh, I mean, there's a lovely woman in Mary in Ormskirk, she's about 101, I don't know how old she, Irish. Used to be a midwife. She never she delivered babies, although she was never trained. Uh, and she's absolutely lovely. She rings in occasionally, maybe once a year, and she tells a story about her life and what she's thinking, what she's feeling. And there's no point to it. it you know, there was, there's no political agenda. There's no come and help me agenda. There's just having a chat agenda. And people know it. They love hearing those stories. And every time she rings, in, people say, "Get her on. Give her her own program." I'm quite right. <laughs> Do you think that presenting a show has changed you, has had an effect on you as a person? Because you, you need to, as you just said about that caller, you need to, sometimes you need to withstand quite a lot of emotional content, don't you? Because you don't know, sometimes those calls will start as one thing and they'll become another. Very often. Uh, sometimes they're very sad indeed. I've had some very sad calls where I really genuinely have felt like crying and come off air afterwards and have a little week because they're very sad, so really, they're, they're few and far between, they're a lot more happy. Has it changed me? Well, I suppose I have changed anyhow over the years. I'm not quite sure how. My voice has got deeper. My stomach has got bigger. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know that I've, I've fundamentally changed at all. When I meet people who I've not seen for a long time, they say, God, you're just the same as you always were. So I don't know that it's changed. But one thing clearly has changed, in a sense, is, is that when I did the cabs, worked on the cabs, I had to cab driver, and I knew, I knew little about motorcycle people, I think. It was very early on, it was 1975, I think. And um, I loved the people, but I didn't know them fully. And I think on the phone-in, I've got a wider range of people that I know, and I've fallen more in love with the city through the people of the city, I think. I was in love with it anyhow. I arrived here in 72 or something. And this, I remember driving up Prince's Avenue. I wasn't driving, someone was driving me up uh, Prince's Avenue. And I looked around and thought, this, this amazing city. It is beautiful. This, uh, although it was in a terrible state at that time. It was lovely. And you, you lift your eyes up in this city. The beauty of the, the architecture is phenomenal. And I, I, the thing about the wit, this thing that's all full of humour, well, yeah, there is a wit to them, but that's not really, it's, I think what I like is the solidarity. Uh, whether you agree or you disagree, um, I mentioned the Dockers strike. Well, Dockers came together. The women of the waterfront came together. Hillsborough, we all came together. And there's a great generosity and a great coming togetherness in this city. Um, the generosity, when the entry, the, the, the non-bombing at Aintree, and uh, we acted as kind of central sort of um, referral, sort of, not a travel agent, but a, an estate agent. People would ring us in and say, well, I've got spare rooms here for those people who can't get back. And people ring us and say, I don't know where to stay. And eventually we put people together. And some of those people I'm told, kind of posh people from down south, are still friends with less posh people up here who put them up which is lovely <laughs> even on your your last show you were being accused of sitting on the fence 
Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, you, but you've also been accused of being the devil's advocate. Yes. What do you think, what's the most important skill do you think to, that you need to have to drive a show like that, where there's that element of the unexpected? Listening, unquestionably, it's listening. Um, although I can talk a lot, as we're proving now, and I can indeed be on the phone, it's listening and listening to, listening to what's behind the call, if you like, not just the surface of it, but what's behind it. And empathy, being able to understand how people are, what they're feeling. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. And I think that's probably the most important thing, but you have to be quick-witted. You've got to be able to quickly sort things out. <laughs> there are issues like the legal issues, which people come in and say things, oh my goodness, you've got to sort that out. I, mean, I have been, I remember once, um, Liverpool Football Club um, tried to have me driven out, but they didn't really. What happened was a call rang, I'm not that interested in football, and the call rang in about football, I was half listening. My producer was talking to me through my headphones. And suddenly Henry says about a coach, uh, I switched into it, and he was saying, oh, Peter, this is all completely untrue. Peter Robinson, oh, he runs a coach company, you can only go to away matches. If you pay a fortune to, uh, always will be. Now, I didn't know at that time one way or the other, so I just said, well, I'm sorry. I have no idea if that's true, and I'm sure Peter Robinson wouldn't do something like that. Well, end of story. Well, Peter Robinson, for whatever reason, decided to um, have a go at us for it. We were libeling him, well, because in those days, it was like a newspaper. We published, and therefore it didn't matter it wasn't us saying it, it was still our problem if somebody said something on air. At that time, the law was just changing a little bit. And when he decided he'd sue us, um, we got lawyers, of course, in London. And the lawyer said, oh, that's really good. I beg your pardon. No, 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 we want to go to court with this because the law has changed slightly. And we want to test it and see if the change affects you. Because I had come out pretty quickly and said, I don't think that's true, I don't know, and shut him up. And... In the end, Peter Robinson didn't go ahead. And I think because they realised, because I've been quick enough, that they couldn't say it was our fault in any way. If I'd endorsed it, yeah, then there would have been a problem. If I'd ignored it, there might have been a problem. But because it came in and said it quickly, there was, I mean, in the end, they didn't go for it. But I have been threatened a few times with things. I get threatened. Pretty Patel put in a formal complaint about me. I think um, the, the Prime Minister... Cameron put in a full complaint against but we got nowhere, thank goodness. I survived. Do you think as well, sort of in, in recent years, with the rise of social media and the fact that people think that they can say what they like, it's my opinion, I'm entitled to my opinion, do you think, have you felt that more of a need to sort of push back against disinformation when people come on the show? Is that something that you've always been, from what you just said, it sounds like you've always been attuned to that anyway? Yeah, but disinformation is a real problem. Uh, social media is a massive problem. Things like QAnon and um, these various stupid... I mean, Trump coined fake news, but there is a lot of fake news. A lot of it comes from the actually, but a lot of fake news around. And people genuinely believe it. Um, it's very difficult. All I can say is I don't believe it. I mean, if you take climate change or whatever, uh, I can say, well, yeah, you might believe that, but 99% of scientists say something else. I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but I have to take the majority. But there are some really, I mean, the ones that really annoy me, and I certainly don't 
sit on the fence because I don't believe we should. Although the Beeb now has acknowledged that recently. <laughs> but it's uh, issues around racism, asylum seekers, those kind of issues. There's no way I'll sit on the fence because I know about those people. I mean, I'm involved with a lovely organization in Liverpool called Asylum Link, which cares for asylum seekers, particularly when they have no money, when they're destitute. It's just extraordinary. And I know some of the stories. I mean, some lovely woman, Yusinda, who I first spoke to when she was in Yarlswood. She and her, he was then about 10. Her son were in Yarlswood. They'd been dragged out of their home at night, taken to Yarlswood because she was going to be deported. It was, thank goodness, stopped. It happened again. To cut a long story short, she's now working up here, paying tax, income tax. Her son is becoming a doctor who is going to solve, you know, people's lives. And I, you know, People don't understand that. They think all those people are here just to mess about. They don't realise that they're coming from awful situations and can contribute. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit and say, well, no, I don't think that's true. They're all what's it? You know, they're all horrible people. I won't because I, I just won't do it. And strangely, the BBC has become more inclined that way, particularly regard racism. I won't have any racism on the program. I just won't have it. Uh, and. All of a sudden, recently, about six months ago, they said, now, if you take racism, there's no balance needed here. Just have a go for it. And we shouldn't be balancing it. Racism is evil. Um, let's let a little bit of daylight in on magic now. You've mentioned Angela, your producer, and the, the people who answered the phones. What, when, what goes on behind the scenes of the phoning? Sort of like, what are the mechanics of it? Because it's not a case of just phoning up and just getting straight through to you on air, is it? No, it's not. They have a much worse job than I do, I'll tell you that. <coughs> Excuse me again. Um, some will ring in. One of the other, we have three answers in the best. Sometimes one or two are real, but they'll take the call. They'll say, what do you want to talk about? They'll say it. And then, and they'll see, are they uh, able to do it? You know, they, quite often they ring and they don't want to go in air. They just want to talk to the caller, the answer, which is a real, they're having to do a lot of work in that respect. But anyhow, they then talk to Angela and say, I've got this, they write it down, this is so-and-so, uh, wants to talk about this, and then Angela will have a pile of paper, in effect, and be saying, well, that will work, that will work. She's trying to get balance, so balance of views, balance of gender, balance of um, the spread across Merseyside. So she's trying to do all of that with whatever resources come in. And... Um, but they have a really tough job because there are some very nasty people out there who never get on air but are very nasty to the caller, you know, who think they have every right to go on air, but you don't. Angela has the, the right. She is the one. I don't have the right. It's weird. People come in and say, thanks very much for letting me on air. Nothing to do with me. It's to do with the answers and Angela. But, I mean, she, I've, she, she's been my producer for uh, 10 years. She's a very skilled producer. I, she was in 2008. The uh, she was in charge of culture for the you know when we had capital culture and she ran the whole of that from BBC Universe. Very articulate, intelligent young woman, and uh, she's brilliant. And so are the phone answers. Uh, um, they've changed from time to time, but uh, Kelly, Nikki, and Christine are just fantastic. Christine's been there the longest, probably about 10 years as well. Um, and they're very skilled at, at being, I think. They're the worst paid, probably, on the station. And yet I think they do the hardest job, and they should be the highest paid, because they, they are really skilled at drawing out from a caller who might be nervous to get them to go on air, 
Somebody may ring in and say, I just want to tell you, la la la. And they realize it's a good, it's a really interesting call that people want to hear. And they can work all the time, but they encourage them to come on air. And then they do, and it's brilliant. And we get brilliant calls that way because of the phone answers. They're just brilliant people. I couldn't do it. As well as the, as, as the callers um, on the show, you also interview a whole spread of guests over the years. Is there anybody that sticks in, in your mind as an interviewee who is particularly good or even particularly bad? Um, I can't remember any of the bad ones. One or two, I, did, I remember doing um, Blair, um, and he it was funny, because he came in with Alistair Campbell, came in the back door, because they didn't want to see him coming in. So he came, he came in the back door, and it was clear he wanted to be with Alistair Campbell. Alistair Campbell sitting next to him holding his hand. But we managed to separate them, and Alistair ended up behind the glass, and Tony Blair was sitting opposite me, looking around like a rabbit and the headlines anyhow so we did the interview and this was what i thought was so odd um i think i can't remember he took calls or not but um i said to him it was he had we had 15 minutes and i said to him can we carry on can we carry on it's going really well and instead of him saying yes or no he turns up and looks at alistair campbell to get permission i thought that was weird Gordon Brown, I loved. He was very funny, particularly off air. He was a lovely guy to speak to. And of course, our current prime minister came up to apologise to Merseyside. For to be fair to him, he hadn't written it, but he was the editor at the time. We were called Whinging Scousers, whatever it was. And to be fair, he came up and he apologised. Not a man I was enamoured of particularly, but it was quite interesting to have him there, being able to put him on the spot a bit. I don't think he'd remember it. Was there anybody over the years who's been particularly enjoyable to interview, who is just great to talk to that you look forward to? Goodness me. Uh, well, normally I've interviewed people I don't, I haven't met before, so in a sense, I'm looking forward to them. But, um, I, you know, I like talking to people generally, so it doesn't really matter who they are. <laughs> I mean, whether they are high or low, it's loads are wrong word, but I love talking to people. So. In terms of interviewing people, I'm trying to think of anybody that I, I really did enjoy talking to, but I, I, I enjoy talking to them all. I, I, I mean, I do a lot of Roscoe lectures uh, when the Roscoe lectures are happening, and they're fantastic people that I speak to there, where I do an interview with them, not for radio, just to chat to. Um, but I don't think I would pick out anybody as, as being particularly wonderful, because they're, they're all wonderful. I, I, what I like about interviewing is they listening and then drawing out the underlying story, the real story, what they really, in a sense, don't want to or haven't thought about speaking about. And that's what I enjoy most about the most. So they're all wonderful. And I get hopefully something out of them all in the end. You just mentioned drawing a story, being responsible for drawing a story out of an individual. But of course, you've also been involved in stories that didn't need any drawing out um, in your final weeks at Merseyside. Quite often, um, the Hills, your role in the, the, the Hillsborough disaster, the reporting on the day was mentioned. What did it mean to you to be part of that story right at the very beginning as it started to be written? Well, you know, I wasn't part of the story. Again, it's a sounding board thing. It was pre-mobile phones and we said, I felt it looking back on it, feels like I was doing a phone in every day 
for four or five days. What I most remember is that when the news came out on the day itself that Liverpool fans had broken down the gate, we knew already on Earth side. It may have taken 20, 30 years. We knew within 10 minutes that that wasn't true. We had loads of callers. Even, they were racing to phones to let us know. But, but um, it, I don't believe I was part of the story. What I believe is we acted as the centre, as the place where people could come to. Again, talk about empathy in order perhaps to get off their chest the awful things that either happened to them or that they had seen. And they just wanted to let people know. Uh, sometimes they wanted to let people, their mum and dad know that they, they were okay. And that was, it was used in that way as well. Um, it, it was, it's wrong to say it was the highlight. It's the most memorable thing of the whole of what I've done over the last 40 years. That was the one thing I'll never forget. And I'll never forget some of those calls which were really upsetting. And I was, I, in fact, I was offered counselling afterwards, which didn't take up because I don't think, I'm quite tough inside. I don't think I really needed it. I can sort myself out. But it was very traumatic. But nothing compared to what happened to people who were not even in Lepping's Lane. People who were around at the time, who were there, who saw what happened, who helped, who carried stretchers or make to do stretchers. They're the ones for whom the trauma was. We're just a radio station. I'm just a radio presenter. It's a nothing job. When I talk to people, I talk about people do, I do talks occasionally, and I talk about how people really do proper jobs. Policemen, fire officers, nurses, care workers. I just sit on my backside and talk. It's not really difficult, you know. 42 years is a long time in any job, but it's a, an exceptionally long time in broadcasting. You, you've seen styles come and go shows come and go do you think that radio still plays a similar kind of role in people's lives today that it did when you first started no i don't think so i think the podcast and the the, the new platforms are they'll never fully take over because something like a phone you can't do on a podcast you've got to have that immediate thing but i think it it will it'll disappear uh, eventually i mean after 40 years time i don't think they'll be ready and i, th I have front worries about the bbc because uh, it looks like this government isn't very keen on the bbc to say the least and it, it's kind of cutting it down to size it's very tough for the bbc to have to keep everything going that they want to keep going so i i can't see that they're going to tune david will i don't think they'll get rid of local radio but that'll be confined somewhat i think we may lose I have no idea. He says we won't lose anything, but I can't see how it's going to go ahead. So what may happen is, instead of each one being different, we all have a sort of centralised news outfit and so forth. So there are things that will happen that will change, um, and, and change happens all the time anyhow. What the heck? Mm. But in the end, there'll be something that I remember when television—I don't remember when television came out in the fifties. People said that was the end of cinema. Well, it never has been, and I think that. While all these new platforms are very good, somewhere people are going to want to look to not just pick their meat. And maybe I'm wrong because I'm not young. I'm told people just get their news out of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. But a lot of that news is nonsense. And if you it's very interesting. When something actually really serious happens, everybody doesn't go to Facebook or they go to the BBC because there is a trust about the BBC. And I think that will remain. So there'll always be a place for a BBC as long as the government decides we can continue to 
doesn't keep chopping our legs away. So our time is nearly up now, and I have one final question for you. We know that the phone-in is going to continue um, now that you've left, but after 42 years of being its presenter, will you now become a caller? <laughs> Great question, no. <laughs> uh, I've never called into a phone-in, and I never would. Uh, Claire, uh, principally Claire, is going to carry on doing Claire Hamilton. Uh, it's moved to a different time, two till three, and it's only an hour. And it probably will have music in. But she's extremely good, very knowledgeable, and a very empathetic person. I think she'll do an absolutely fantastic job. And what I hope is it's just such a good job that take it back to two hours. I don't think they will, but I hope that happens. Brilliant. Roger, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Really nice to be with you. That's the end of this episode of Mersey Waves. Our thanks go to Roger, as well as our very best wishes for his retirement. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe. If you want to get in touch with the Mersey Waves team, please email hello at merseywaves.co.uk. Thank you.